Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Defense Department's top technology doesn't live where you might think it does. 11 out of the 14 of those technologies are primarily in the non-defense sector, in the commercial industrial base. And the other three actually have commercial tails. Putting the right political appointees in the right places. It's a difficult thing to evaluate for. When I went through the Senate confirmation process, I was astounded by the questions that people asked me that, in my judgment, had very little to do with what I was being asked to do. And the VA EHR program learns the end user lesson the hard way. Without having your clinical leaders and your clinical providers as part of the construction process, anybody could have guaranteed challenges with delivering the care during implementation and in you know the years to come. It's Thursday, June 9th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Deputy Secretary of Defense expects impact from the new office of the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office within a year. Kathleen Hicks tells the annual Digital and AI Symposium at DOD, within the next year, the office, quote, is the go-to place for talent and technical expertise to get after JADC2 and AI more broadly in the department. Hicks says the department will use AI for back office and, quote, boardroom functions, too. Nominations are open for the first ever Cyber Innovation Fellows at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. CISA Director Jen Easterly says the program will bring private sector talent into the agency for a few days each month for a total of four months. The agency's taking nominations until July 8th. First Group Fellows begin service this fall. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The annual authorization for the money the Defense Department can spend is underway. Both armed services committees have begun their marks for their National Defense Authorization Acts. Bill Greenwald is non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, founder of the Silicon Valley Defense Group. He's former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy and former senior staff member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's your sense of where the landscape lies today as we look at where the chambers are with their National Defense Authorization Acts? Welcome. Well, thanks, Francis, and thanks for having me on here. Uh, I, I think, you know, what's, it's, it's very heartening to see that the process goes on. The committees are marking up. Uh, they're tackling difficult issues, and we'll tackle difficult issues, and we'll try to get to the floor as soon as possible to have regular order. Uh, as we know, in an election year, that's probably going to be difficult. Uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, issues will, will, will come up and barriers to, to getting, getting the job done will, will, will be thrown up in, in their way. But I, I expect that uh, soon after the elections, we'll see uh, another Defense Authorization Act. But we'll probably sit here probably on another program and say, oh, my gosh, it looks like it's not going to happen this year. Yeah, here we go. This is what, 61, 62 that we're going for this year in a row, number of defense authorization acts in a row that uh, we get implemented. Exactly. And so the process works. It doesn't always work as uh, as the way uh, 
uh, we, I think they would like to see it or the way you read about it and how a bill, you know, comes before Capitol Hill type of thing, but it gets done and that's a good thing. What's your sense of what the potential, uh, the sticking points are? Where's the potential sandpaper this year? Uh, it's, it's a little too early to, find, to, 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 to look at it, but I would say anything dealing with Ukraine, anything dealing with, uh, uh, China, anything dealing with, uh, uh, various ways of, of, of using the Department of Defense in, in non-defense matters will start creating some, some, some issues. And frankly, any issue in an election year will probably be trying to be put on the bill and they'll have to figure out a way to, to unstick it. The defense industrial base is tracking what happens in the NDAA just as closely as uh, observers like us do, uh, Bill. And I wonder, is there something underlying there that the defense industrial base should be paying attention to? You're writing about the defense industrial base lately and kind of the the partnerships that it has and that the United States has with other countries around the world. And I wonder if there's anything that you see that connects those two issues, the concerns the defense industrial base has now about its future and, and what those partnerships look like and what Congress is working on on the Hill. Yeah, no, I, I think it, we, what we sh- hopefully will see uh, this year is Congress trying to figure out a, a better way for the defense industrial base to uh, address its supply chain issues, its partnerships with uh, uh, countries overseas, to remove barriers, to not just working with with, uh, our closest partners like the UK, Australia, and Canada, but also in Silicon Valley and commercial companies who face tremendous challenges in in, in providing the best uh, goods and services to the Department of Defense and, and the government as a whole. So hopefully the Congress will, 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 will look at this and try to uh, remove some of those barriers. One of the challenges potentially to that, though, Bill, is that people inside the building keep telling me that the, the definition of the defense industrial base and what the department wants and needs from the DIB is evolving so rapidly because of the evolution of technology and the potential evolution of, of warfare and deterrence that... That might, I mean, we, we all have watched the Congress become overcome by events over the last couple of years and, and the last couple of decades. No, the, the problem is, is everyone looks at the defense industrial base as the main primes that, that are producing those defense unique platforms. But the reality, as you see in uh, uh, Heidi Shu's uh, R&E's look at what are the top technologies we need, 11 out of the 14 of those technologies are primarily in the non-defense sector in the commercial industrial base. And the other three actually have commercial tails. So it's, 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 it's an entirely new industrial base that's rising up. And this industrial base has globalized, it's commercialized, it's, it's in, in, in various parts of the world. And the Department of Defense has to figure out how to uh, access it in a different way than it accesses the present defense unique industrial base. How much does the defense industrial base and the department depend on Congress to codify that? And how much does the department, does the building have to determine that for itself and just get on with it, Bill? Congress has given them tremendous amount of tools and flexibility and acquisition flexibilities and so on. Uh, uh, the, the budget is an issue and, and there's, there's uh, a, a commission to look at that. But even so, the, the, the department has its own uh, barriers uh, in, in, in place. I will say, though, that we have other barriers, tech transfer barriers, export control barriers, various other things that 
keep the commercial companies from working with the department and keep our allies from working with the department. And that is just not going to cut it if we're actually in a global competition with uh, uh, various other powers. So uh, someone in the building recently put it to me this way, I un- and I'm paraphrasing, I'm, this is not a quote, but this is the general idea. I understand the value of Made in America, and I understand the importance of Made in America, but what if we could get to a point where the gold standard was made among partners or made by made in America or by our friends or something like that. Is that kind of the idea that you're seeing here? And is that what you're worried about as far as what's happening with the NTIB and uh, among those AUKUS partners that you referenced earlier? Yes. No, I, I, I hope that that, that, that is the, uh, that that's where we can come, come because by America was, was a policy in place in the, you know, in the 1930s when everyone was, was autarkic, everyone was going on their own type of thing. The, the world economy and global economy has changed and the sources of innovation have changed. We need a by allied approach. We need a way of, of, of ensuring that our, our supply chain is trusted and it's just not going to all come home to the United States. It's going to be in, in, in various other parts of the world. And we have to create the incentive structure and, and, the, and the, the rules and regulations to allow that to happen. Right now, they don't exist. And, it, and, and it's, it's just designed for an era of the 1930s. What are the wrinkles or potential wrinkles, if any, in a bi-allied approach? I love that phrase, by the way, and I'm going to steal it and use it many times. <laughs> Um, and probably not give you credit, to be honest, because I'll okay. forget. That's okay. Um, but what are the wrinkles or potential wrinkles um, to that bill when the definition of an ally can be fluid? No, that, 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 you know, that is always going to be an issue, and there's going to have to be a way of, of, uh, of, of trusting our allies up to a certain point, and then for certain things, you know, we're going to have to go it alone. But I think there are concentric circles of allies and different groups we can have. So the NTIB... National Technology Industrial Base has our closest five allies. There's probably another concentric circle that can include the Norwegians or the Dutch or who, you know, who, who knows, and then beyond, beyond that. And I think we have to have different rule sets for different uh, uh, sets of allies and, and, frankly, for different sets of technologies. Some things we might trust uh, the supply chain to be in Mexico and in Indonesia, and others we could say, no, it only has to be here in the United States. What um, what governance then does the department need and what can Congress put in place to facilitate all of that fluidity? Because there's what you're talking about is a tremendous amount of flexibility that I wonder, even if Congress did give the department the authority to do it, execution, I wonder what that would look like. I mean, that that, that, that will be difficult, but I think Congress can provide some clarity in who is in the the uh, the good guy lists and who are in the bad guy list. So, for example, by by focusing in on we don't want our supply chain in, in, in China, in Iran, in North Korea, in Russia. That's one thing. And then then to act, to provide positive things like the NTIB for our Five Eyes partners, where you have a different try to have, establish a different rule set, and then flexibility in the middle. Bill Greenwald, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You can read more about the Defense Industrial Base in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, along with the CIOs and CTOs across government, are coming to the UiPath Together Summit. You'll learn about automation from leaders in government and industry. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City this coming Tuesday, June 14th. You can find the link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Homeland Security has one fewer opening among its political appointee cohort today. The Senate confirmed Ken Weinstein to be the Undersecretary of DHS for Intelligence and Analysis. Rafael Boris is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. He's former Undersecretary for Management at DHS. Rafael, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I note uh, Secretary Mayorkas's uh, commendations to the Senate for confirming Ken to this job. Here's what jumped out at me in this press release. I want to, this is a quote from Secretary Mayorkas. I want to express my sincere gratitude to uh, Melissa Smyslova for her steadfast leadership as the senior official performing the duties of Undersecretary for INA. Melissa will continue to serve at INA as acting principal deputy undersecretary and it, explaining what her responsibilities will be there. I, I can't help but notice we're lacking... She's going to go back into an act, moving from one acting role to another, essentially. We have an acting chief financial officer, and Stacey Marcotte's great and all of that, but she's the acting. Uh, acting inspector general, there are still some big roles this far into this administration at DHS that remain open. How problematic is that, if it is, from a management perspective, Raphael? Welcome. Well, thank you. It's always great to be here with you, uh, Francis. Uh, you know, this is a this is a not an uncommon situation. Uh, in fact, you know the Homeland Security is better than most departments. I think the State Department has, uh, I don't know, twenty uh, uh, positions with no nominees. Justice Department has a has more than a handful, uh, and I think DHS has uh, you know three uh, three positions that have uh, no nominees. But you know the positions are very important. You've got my old position, the Undersecretary for Management, uh, as you stated, the CFO. Uh, which, of course, is, you know, is capably uh, uh, held uh, by Stacy, who was uh, an important part of my team uh, during my tenure. And then that FEMA, the resilience uh, assistant director, you know, heading into uh, hurricane season. Uh, so, you know, the record is not not terrible. The positions are important. But the, to the broader point about uh, acting, you know, I've been asked this question before, uh, particularly during the previous administration, where there were a whole host of acting uh, positions. And I'll, I'll say the same thing I said then, which is, you know, number one, uh, there are a tremendous number of highly capable uh, career individuals who have the ability to step up and, uh, and, uh, and perform those duties uh, as required. Uh, is it optimal? Uh, you know, and, and my judgment is, is it's not, it's, it's sort of suboptimal. And that's no reflection on those individuals. Uh, I think what's really, really important, and particularly given the positions that are vacant uh, with no nominees at DHS, is the critical role they play and the trust that's required between the secretary, the deputy secretary, the leadership of the department, all the components, and that individual to be on the same page, to be tied to a same set of priorities, to be held accountable by the administration. I think that's what's missing. Does this or should this generate a conversation about how many or which jobs 
are correct and appropriate to be political appointee positions. I know that's changed somewhat significantly at DHS over yes. time, but I know, for example, you referenced the number of openings at State Department, 20-some. There aren't even that many political jobs at DHS at all. I think 17 is the number that I saw as I prepared to talk to you today, looking at the Partnership for Public Services political appointee tracker. I think there's only 17 political jobs in the entire Department of Homeland Security. You know, that, that's something that uh, uh, you're very astute picking that up uh, relative to other uh, cabinet agencies. Take the Department of Commerce. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. I was there during the 1990s. Uh, boy, that's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Uh, the early two, uh, 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 but, uh, uh, you know, they have, you know, more than twice as many, maybe three times as many political appointees. Uh, so, uh, you know, look, Homeland Security is all about the security of the homeland. And uh, I think it's, and again, it speaks to my level of comfort with the career uh, leadership that can step up. But let me give you a specific example. In my case, uh, uh, the position that I held under Secretary for Management, as you know, as your listeners know, statutorily is a very significant position. And when you go through the vetting process, a very, very important part of the process, and it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to judge, but you know, you do your best, is fit. You want to have the fit. And what, 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 what I found, my experience was uh, being a part of, at, in the beginning, Janet Napolitano's leadership team, uh, we bonded immediately with a level of trust that allowed me to do the things that I needed to do, knowing that she had my back. But it was a relationship, although we didn't have a prior relationship, was built on trust. And that is hard to develop with the career folks uh, because the career folks often are a little reticent about, you know, embracing uh, a particular administration. It's, it's probably not the best move for them to, uh, uh, to go all, all in. So when you get critical positions, CFO, uh, uh, USM, uh, over the position of FEMA, IG, although, although I'll give you a wonderful example, uh, we had Peggy Sherry as the deputy CFO during my tenure. Uh, a, a career person, tremendous leadership skills and abilities. And it, it just highlighted how good she was. And as uh, you and your listeners know, she wound up getting nominated by the administration and was confirmed by the Senate and served wonderfully as the department CFO. So there's always exceptions and people who were just ready made uh, to move into that position. But by and large, I understand the difficulty career people have about sort of aligning themselves too closely with any particular group. How does one determine fit? What do, what do you, when you were looking for someone to work for you, what elements of that person's character, experience, background, personality, whatever, made you think either this person will be a good fit or this person's eminently qualified, but I'm just not sure it's the right fit? Yeah, you know, and you, you, do, you do confront both of those situations, and I've confronted both of them. Uh, and I, of course, had to make some changes uh, uh, not too long after I came into DHS as the USM. Uh, and, and, and it operated both ways, you know. So, again, look at somebody like Peggy Sherry, who immediately uh, uh, came to my attention as someone who was, who was not only highly skilled uh, and extremely knowledgeable, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, was very open about listening to an articulation of priorities and said, you know, I, I, I align with that. And I can I can operate within that sort of philosophy. Uh, and uh, she had the personality that she can get along with others. 
uh, because I was interested in building a cohesive team. And there were other people that uh, you had to, as I said, you had to liberate them. You had to say, <laughs> you know, there might be something better for you to do in the organization than this, uh, this position. And uh, I used to call that my liberation strategy. I love that. You told me that once um, over a sandwich, I think. And I love that term because I had not heard it that way before. Um, and that for another time, we should talk about what that looks like and, and how one goes about implementing that. Focusing, though, back as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation at DHS, what are the right elements to look for for somebody to go into that organization specifically, Raphael, if they don't have a background necessarily in the element of Homeland Security with which they'll be involved, what makes someone a good fit inside that particular organization? Well, I think, you know, it, it starts with the level of commitment, you know, so clearly you want somebody that has an understanding of the mission. Uh, and it's very difficult to find comparable organizations, law enforcement dominant, homeland security organizations outside of DHS that are that big and that complex. So uh, holding a person to a standard to say, you know, have you served in a 240,000 person organization, et cetera, uh, is, uh, is, is very, very difficult because very few people have. You know, so what I think, you know, in, in my experience, uh, what people are looking for, uh, again, is affinity to mission, uh, uh, an ability to be able to articulate uh, both uh, uh, externally and internally to the organization, uh, uh, you know, a set of priorities, a set of focus uh, that bring credibility, uh, that can speak the language. You know, DHS is, is as I stated, it's very law enforcement heavy. Uh, so, uh, no, you don't have to be a former law enforcement officer to have credibility, but you have to know how to talk the language. You have to be able to decipher and understand the needs and to be able to know when, and uh, in my case, uh, when, you know, a proposal for increased funding or personnel is credible or legitimate or is based on, on uh, fact-based or uh, extends a, a particular policy versus uh, sort of a typical, I just need more and, and I'll figure out what to do with it later. But fit is, is often underestimated and it's a difficult thing to evaluate for. When I went through the Senate confirmation process, I was astounded by the questions that people asked me that in my judgment had very little to do with what I was being asked to do and the duties I was uh, asked to perform. Uh, you know, I mean, I had it all. Uh, Francis, I had one senator who, of course, remained nameless because that's the way I roll, uh, but who didn't even know what department I was uh, being considered for and uh, said, uh, you know, what did I think about the State Department? And I said, I think it's a fine department, but that's not where I'm going. <laughs> Raphael, it's great to have you on the program as always. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can read more about the political appointee landscape at DHS in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Veterans Affairs is missing key metrics in its rollout of its electronic health record system, according to the VA Office of Inspector General. The IG office says those gaps could hurt the ability of the facility using the system to provide care to veterans. Dr. Julie Kroviak, MD, is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dr. Kroviak, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Your team went to man grand staff in Washington and looked at the deployment that they've undertaken there for a year or so. What did you look at specifically there, doctor? Welcome. 
Thank you. So specifically for this report, we were looking at the impact and availability of um, data that Mangrand staff's clinical staff had access to since implementation of the new EHR. So we're describing this healthcare data sort of as tools that the facility leaders, clinical and not, would be using to assess performance and patient safety and access um, to healthcare for the veterans it serves. You write, uh, you and your team write in this work, the OIG found that facility gaps in available metrics due to the new EHR transition impaired the facility's ability to measure and act on issues of organizational performance, quality and patient safety, and access to care. That sounds like pretty much the entire gamut of issues that somebody would be using this system to track. What were the gaps specifically that you found, doctor? So you hit on the three topics, how we organized and how hospital leaders um, think of this data and actually use the data. Um, VHA is not unique. They have thousands of data points. They collect so much metrics as all healthcare systems do. Um, the gaps that we were finding in organizational performance, quality and patient safety and access to care we had concerns because we really felt after understanding the issue, leaders were at an incredible disadvantage in making day-to-day -day operational decisions, but really understanding um, the safety and quality of care that they were delivering in that setting and what type of resource allocations they might need to adjust based on limitations to access that that data would indicate. What is your sense or what did the evidence show of how that gap happened? Because that I, I'm an amateur, you're a professional, but that sounds like really important information to need to know in order to be able to provide the level of care that I know the VHA aspires to. Yeah, so it was actually um, required a lot of digging to understand where these gaps actually um, came from. And it started early in the process of planning and creating work plans um, years before the implementation process started. So in the contract, Cerner is obligated, or at the time was obligated to provide some data reports um, that VHA intent would intend to use in this type of setting. The problem was no one could understand what that data was going to look like on the VHA side until the go live date. So there was no like playground where they could understand the metrics they were wanting to see and used every day, what it would look like in the Cerner language. So that impacted training. So you couldn't train on something that you didn't know what it would look like. So um, once these data deliveries happened, it wasn't apples to apples. You know, it was apples to exotic Kiwis and trying to get staff to reinterpret and translate that was left up to VHA. So you can imagine that's an incredible burden on staff that weren't prepared to undertake this test. There was no way to validate it. They were doing the best they could to translate, but there was no validation step built in to make sure it was again, back to apples to apples. So you have an overworked staff who's just trying to get patient care going. They're trying to interpret the data and then there are this additional burden of making it on the spot useful for these critical decision-making processes. So this takes me to the next uh, thing that jumped out at me about your work, doctor, and that is the OIG found the following go-live facility staff utilized workarounds to mitigate the post-go-live metrics gap. What was the result of that? And did that turn out to be a setback or was it just kind of a sidebar that was an obstacle on a day-to-day -day basis? 
So implementation with Cerner has become the story of workarounds. Um, we've been overwhelmed with the dedication of VHA staff trying to make this work while continuing to provide care during this thing called a pandemic. So we're in awe of what they tried to do, but workarounds introduce inefficiencies by definition. You're gonna try to get what you need, but you're, you don't really know that you're effectively measuring it. And your tasking staff who have other things to do didn't plan on this and are learning as they go around. So the potential for introducing errors is significant. The detail in you and your team's work is impressive. And I commend that to anybody who really wants to take a deep dive on what happened and what you looked at. We'll put a link to that in the show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com today, doctor. What are the implications of what you learned at Man Grandstaff for the deployments that are happening now in Ohio and that will eventually happen throughout the system? It's, uh, is this a one-off because Man Grandstaff was the first place or will this replicate in, in other locations? Well, here's what we want for all of our work on EHR and Man Grandstaff to do. We, we want it to be um, a, a, a way for VHA, VA, to incorporate the concerns we have and fix them before they impact other facilities. We don't have that confidence yet. You know, the recommendations to the deputy secretary to understand what the gaps are and figure out why they're happening, those recommendations are open. And despite VA suggesting they've been fixed, we have seen no evidence to not only suggest they've been fixed, but that they those fixes are sustainable across further implementation sites. What are those fixes and what will ascertain that those recommendations have been closed? Is it just a, a reinspection and yes, the work's complete or is there more to it than that, doctor? So yeah, it's, it's, pretty difficult to get our recommendations closed. You know, what VA will have to provide is the fixed plan, which then has to come with repeat evidence of data to show the fix is in place and the fix continues to work. So we're going to need more um, data, definitely, uh, from VA to understand that that is actually happening. And we will um, not close it until we are 100% comfortable with a resolution. How much of this is on VA and how much of this is on Cerner and how much of it is a combination of both, do you think, doctor? So I think this is probably our first um, report that really identifies Cerner as um, part of an issue that VHA was not prepared for. So in the end, uh, you know, with that at the front line with the patient, there they have equal, um, I don't want to say fault, but they have equal obstacles to overcome to make this work. But again, until we have evidence that that's working and that data is not only available, but usable by the people who have to use it, these recommendations are open. An ongoing theme of this in my covering coverage in my following this issue is kind of a comparison between VA's journey here with the vendor and the Department of Defense's journey with the vendor. And I know you don't know, I uh, can't speak to what the DOD's journey is, but is there a sense that there, to be, to be quite honest, ma'am, DOD doesn't seem to be having these same problems as publicly, at least as VA. Doesn't mean they, doesn't mean they don't exist, but I wonder if there is, any kind of information exchange or collaboration or anything, if, if you can even speak to that. 
So we have not been participating in the conversations, particularly early on between DOD and VA that we know happened to some extent, but whether there's been a rich resource sharing of lessons learned and conversations like that, we, we agree would be beneficial, but I can't, I don't understand the detail to which those occurred and if they're still occurring or not. The over, uh, uh, everyone must understand DOD and VA are completely different in how they provide care and to whom they're providing that care. So it, it is not enough to say that something is working or we assume it's working because we haven't heard noise like this on the DOD side um, because these are really, really different patient populations and incredibly different settings in which care is delivered. Yeah, I understand that, doctor, and I didn't. I don't mean to put you in a in a spot to comment on DOD, but one of the underlying elements of this 10, 12, 15 years ago, when this conversation first began, was that interoperability between those two organizations and the importance of that. Um, to go back to the work that you and your team did, what? How does the work that you did in this particular area about these metrics? fit into or feed into any overall concerns that your office has about the direction in which this project is headed? Um, so this is another example of what we feel VHA, so the clinical side of the house, not having a strong enough presence in the early plannings of this implementation process. VHA, those providers are the end users and they needed to be the ultimate decision makers in terms of what would work with how they care for patients and the type of patients they care for. And we very much feel they were left out of critical early discussion, decision and planning in this process. Is that the reason that they're left to do the workarounds because they're the ones who know how to give the care and know what the care is that needs to be given on a day-to-day -day basis, face-to-face -face with the patient? Is that, is that uh, really I mean, the crux of it? Of, well, that's part of the $20 billion question. Um, but without having your clinical leaders and your clinical providers as part of the construction process, anybody could have guaranteed challenges with delivering the care during implementation and in you know, the years to come. So that, that was a disappointing understanding as we've delved into all of these projects that VHA didn't play a more critical role up front. It is not surprising to us in any way that VHA will step in. These providers want to take care of veterans. So workarounds or not, they are going to figure out how to get the veterans what they need. Dr. Kroviak, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate having you on the program. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, you can find a link to the IG report Dr. Kroviak talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put this show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.